Our passage this morning is taken from Revelation chapters 10 and 11. I'm going to read about half of that right now. We'll pick up the other half in just a few minutes. Uh, starting with Revelation chapter 10, verses 1 through 7, and dropping down to chapter 11, verses 15 to 19. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs were like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and he called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded, and when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write down what I, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and don't write it down. Then the angel I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is on it, and the sea and what is in it, and, this, and that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he had announced to his servants, the prophets." Chapter 11, verse 15, then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of our world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, we give thanks to you, God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. This is God's word for us. This morning you may be seated. From the perspective of most, the life of Jim Elliot doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Uh, Elliot had it all as a young college graduate. He was young, uh, he was athletic, he was good looking, he was college educated, and he was part of the majority culture in America, which was the most opportunity rich uh, nation on the planet. His world, in short, as a young man, was full of possibilities. Uh, virtually nothing could stand between him and a very successful and appealing life. But as many of us have heard, uh, Jim Elliot lived a different life. In fact, we know his story precisely because he didn't just pursue a glittering career of his choice and have a comfortable life. In fact, his rather promising life didn't last long. Uh, Jim was a Christian, and that changes your understanding of why you're on this planet. And so he and uh, several other friends left the U.S. for the Ecuadorian rainforest to attempt to make contact with a completely isolated tribe of natives that were known to be very violent and had no contact with the outside world, even as late as the mid-20th century. 
After several contacts from a distance designed to show their good intentions, they finally risked personal face-to-face contact with the Wadani tribe, landing their plane and getting out. They were eventually met by several warriors from the tribe who, as many of you know, speared these five young men to death on the banks of the river in South America. Five lives snuffed out. Five marriages that would not be. Five prospective husbands and fathers and homes that would never be the same. Tragic waste? Eliot's most famous quote was his own rewording of a line that he ran across during his theological studies at Wheaton Bible School. Scribbled on the margins of one of his personal journals is the now famous words, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Whether these lives were a waste depends a great deal on how important you think this life is, whether or not there's anything greater beyond it. Of course, it's the most basic statement of Christianity. It's Christianity 101 to say there is something much greater beyond this life, and that actually God put us in this world. If you're a Christian, you understand that you're put in this world to live this life in light of the next. And that's a truth that the Bible presents us with and confronts us with repeatedly, and that's what it does in today's passage. I find it um, fascinating that Jordan was led to pray um, that uh, some of our uh, brothers who are in Central Asia right now, in a Muslim-majority country, uh, who have become Christians and are are in danger of of life and, and, and health, that he was led to pray that they would receive visions if that's what was necessary to help them realize to gain the perspective they need, to realize the scope that this life is only to be lived in light of the next. That's a good prayer. It's not one we arranged ahead of time, but it's exactly what we find here in the Bible. In the book of Revelation, the readers of the Bible are given these uh, pictures, these visions originally given to the Apostle John. He wrote them down, and they are images. They are visions designed to lift our eyes up and realize that we are here for a purpose and to persevere in that purpose because there is something much greater beyond. As we continue this uh, study of Revelation, we're going to look at two chapters this morning, both relatively short, uh, but nonetheless, that's a lot to cover. So we're going to, as is our our custom, move uh, reasonably quickly through it. We'll allude to some of the details, but there's far more details here than we're going to have time to comment on. Instead, we're going to try to stay at a higher level and kind of catch the flow of thought through these two chapters, because there is a flow of thought, and it presents to us a message And that's where we're headed this morning. Just a quick reminder to reset the context. We are toward the tail end of a series of six visions of angels blowing trumpets that were announcing a judgment from God upon uh, unrepentant and unbelieving humanity. We have seen these six trumpets blow, but we were told that there are seven trumpets, and so we're toward the tail end of this series of judgments in these visions that John is writing down for us. Today, though, we come to a break between the sixth trumpet and the seventh, just as there was an extensive break, if you recall back in chapter seven, between the breaking of the sixth seal and the breaking of the seventh and final seal. So there is a long pause here between the announcement of the seventh trumpet, as we just read a moment ago, and then the actual blowing of the seventh trumpet. 
So what we're going to do this morning is kind of take this in two parts. The first is the announcement of the final trumpet blast, and then we'll skip to the end where it actually blows. And notice a couple of things there. That's the passage I just read. Then we actually want to spend the, the lion's share of our time going back to the vision that John receives in between the announcement of the seventh trumpet and the blowing of the seventh trumpet, because there's an important message there for Christians, I believe, of all ages. It's a call to Christians to be faithful in the task of making Jesus known no matter the cost. Because what we gain from doing so far outweighs whatever we might lose. That, I believe, at the end of the day is what God is trying to communicate to us in these two visions. So, briefly, a few comments about the uh, seventh trumpet and this announcement that it will be blown. In chapters 10, verses uh, 1 to 7 that we just read a moment ago, we see this, this big uh, angel, this mighty angel. John gets this vision of him, and he's got one foot in the sea and one foot on the land, and he's reaching up to the heavens. Uh, that's a pretty uh, common way of, of, of the way that people in the ancient world would think of the entire created order. There's the heavens, which to them was the sky, where there were birds and clouds, but also the sun, moon, and stars. That's that realm. And then there's the earth, the dry land, and then there's the oceans. And so by having a, a foot on the land and a foot on the sea and reaching to heaven, it kind of seems like this angel's announcement is for all humanity. So what's, what's the announcement that this angel has that he's speaking to the entire universe, as it were? His announcement is that there there would be no more delay, that there would be no more delay, which is kind of interesting when you think about it. It's like he's saying, hey, finally, we're going to stop waiting. God is going to stop holding back. He's going to stop delaying. Now, if you've been reading the last couple of chapters of Revelation, chapters 8 and 9, you might want to scratch your head a little bit and ask this angel, where's the delay been? There's been a whole lot of stuff going on as these first six trumpets have blown. God has been shown to be sending all sorts of judgments on unrepentant humanity, and yet this angel describes all of that as a period of delay. And what I think is going on here is much like the martyr's cry in chapter 6 at the breaking of the fifth seal, there's, this has been a delay in punishing all evil and completely ending it, ushering in the new heavens and the new earth and getting rid of death. In other words, it's been a delay in the final judgment. Yes, God has been busy um, sending judgments upon the earth, but they have always been partial judgments. You'll recall, if you've been with us the last couple of weeks, during these six trumpet blasts that have happened, there was this repeated, a third of the people were affected, or a third of the rivers were affected, or a third, a third, a third. It kept repeating that, that third fraction over and over and over again. These were significant judgments, but they didn't affect everybody. And even though those judgments were harsh, still they allowed much evil to continue on in the world. You remember last week how chapter 9 concluded, despite all these judgments, people still did not repent of their evil. People are still living out sin. And so as serious as these judgments have been, they're not final. Well, now we're told that there will be no more delay uh, the day of final judgment is imminent. And he announces that uh, the seventh trumpet in verse 7 will be God bringing about what he promised to bring about many, many ages ago through the Old Testament prophets. The Old Testament prophets foretold of a future day of the Lord was their most common phrase, which was understood to be a day of final judgment when God would finally make everything Right, he would finally punish all evildoers 
Finally, all sin would go punished. All evildoers would no longer get away with doing evil. God's people would be saved, and the world would be made a just and beautiful place again. This is all now associated with the blowing of the seventh trumpet. So in this sense, I think uh, the angel's announcement here serves the same purpose as that half hour of silence back at the beginning of chapter 8, if you remember that, served uh, at that time. It's a breathless anticipation that is an announcement of the final judgment of God that is about to happen. And this becomes even clearer when the trumpet actually sounds. Drop down again to chapter 11, verse 15. Uh, We'll get back to that intervening vision in just a moment, but first we want to wrap this part up. Now, verses 15 to 19, chapter 11 concludes with the blowing of the seventh trumpet and then what John sees happened uh, next. And what he sees is several things. We're going to move through this fairly quickly because I want to get to this other vision, so pardon me if we move uh, a little fast here. First, uh, we see that the seventh trumpet blows and God's kingdom finally is consummated on the earth the kingdoms of this world the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our lord and Christ, and his christ and he shall reign forever sorry i couldn't resist that that's where handel got this right he didn't write that himself he's taken it right out of revelation chapter 11 it's this announcement that finally yeah God has been reigning from his throne in heaven. I mean, back in the first century, Jesus showed up and he announced that his arrival was the arrival of God's kingdom. In some, and, and then when he, we ascended back to heaven, he, he sat on heaven's throne. Jesus has been reigning sort of from heaven and he is sovereign over the earth, but clearly throughout human history, the earth is a place where evil still has some sway. He has not finally consummated his reign and completely ended all evil. Well, now he's doing that. The kingdom of our Lord, of this world, has now finally become the kingdom of our Lord and his Messiah. And then look at the, the song of praise that these 24 angelic elders sing. We've seen those guys before. They'll crop up a few more times throughout the book of Revelation. Jesus is seen in verses 17 and 18 to be reigning on the earth. You have taken your great power and begun to reign. And the time for final judgment and reward has come. Look at their language. The nations raged, but your wrath came. Wrath, God's wrath, is his righteous anger against sin and evil. And it's been restrained throughout history, but now it finally comes, and it's actually even spoken of here in the past tense. Why? Because the seventh trumpet already blew. This is a picture of angelic praise once the final judgment has been instituted. And it's the time for rewarding um, the dead to be judged and for rewarding his saints. These are all things that we will read about again at the end of the book, particularly Revelation chapter 20 and and, uh, 21 in more detail. Lastly, in verse 19, I'll just point out one more thing here. John gets this vision of the temple of uh, God in Uh, heaven being opened and the Ark of the Covenant seen within the temple, which is interesting. The Ark of the Covenant hasn't been mentioned at all in the book of Revelation, and yet here it is. John sees this picture of a temple very similar to the, the Jewish temples on the earth, except it's wide open and you can see right into it to the Ark of the Covenant. Now, what would that have said? What image, uh, what would that image have communicated to anybody who was familiar with the Old Testament and the tabernacle? It would have communicated that God is now accessible. 
This is a very similar uh, image to the scene that took place when Jesus died on the cross. He breathed his last, and one of the many things that happens, the Bible says, is that the curtain inside the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. You remember that? And the way into the most holy place, which is kind of how the old temple was laid out, and, and the Ark of the Covenant, which was this ornate box that represented the presence of God, which was cut off from the people. It was put inside the most holy place, the innermost room of the temple, and it was covered over with this big curtain, and no people could go in and see it, much less interact with it or touch it. They couldn't even see it because that was the presence of God, and that was all designed to show that you are separate from God because of your sin. Well, when Jesus dies on the cross, the veil of the temple is ripped in two, meaning what? The way into the presence of God is now open because of the sacrifice of Jesus. This is a very similar scene right here. Because the final judgment has sounded, the innermost holy place of the temple is thrown open and God is directly accessible. He is with his people. And last but not least, all this cosmological language of earthquake and fire and, and, and heavy hail, we talked about this a couple of Sundays ago, very much parallels the language at the end of the seven seals before and the end of this next series of seven bowl judgments later. Now, without getting into all that detail, here's the reason I bring this just to our attention. It's so that we can understand kind of the structure of the book of Revelation. So often, there's so many wild, fantastical visions in this book, and they come fast and furious, and it can be hard to keep up with it. And, and, and if you read the whole thing from, from start to finish, it just kind of seems like this mash, menagerie of, of, of crazy visions that doesn't really have any rhyme or reason to it. But when you pull back, there's actually an identifiable structure to this book. Over and over again, it is what Bible scholars call recapitulating. That's their fancy word. It's covering the same ground and again bringing us repeatedly through human history and ultimately giving us visions of the future when God will bring the final judgment to consummation. Why is it doing that? For one simple purpose. The whole goal of the book of Revelation, we saw this back in chapter 1, was to take Christians in the first century, and every century since, who were in a minority and they were powerless and they were being abused and persecuted in various ways for their faith and strengthen their faith by giving them the perspective that God is in control and he will bring his plan to fulfillment, so stay faithful to the gospel call no matter what the cost. That's what these visions are designed to do. And I think we see that even more when we get to this intervening vision, which is where we really want to kind of land this morning, from chapter 10, verse 8, all the way through 11, verse 14. So, having seen the announcement of the seventh trumpet and then the blowing of the seventh trumpet, now let's go back and, and look at what happens in between. Because there's an announcement that we're about to get a trumpet blast, but all of a sudden we don't get a trumpet blast. What we get is chapter 10, verse 8. Let me now read this passage from chapter 8, verse 10 to 11, verse 14, without interruption. There's a lot going on here, and then what we're going to do afterwards is point out a couple of things that help us understand what's happening, and then ultimately we're going to kind of land this thing and saying, what do we get out of this, and how does this impact us today? Because there are profound impacts for us as Christians, even in our modern day today. Revelation chapter 10, verse 8. Then the voice that I had heard from the heavens spoke to me again, saying, Go take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take it and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. 
So I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and I ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but once I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but don't measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These, John tells us, are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours out from their mouths and consumes their foes. If anyone would uh, harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky so that no rain would fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have the power over waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because of these two prophets who had tormented them, who had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here! And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in that earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third is soon to come. Quite a narrative. Quite a series of visions. This vision, like some of the others in Revelation, plays out like a drama, if you will. John not only describes seeing certain beings and settings, but he actually describes uh, quite a bit of action that takes place. So let me just say a couple of quick things about this before we kind of pick it apart. First of all, this is probably, almost everybody I've ever read on this, all the Bible scholars agree, this is probably the most disputed and disagreed about chapter in the entire book of Revelation. (laughs) in terms of what all of these different images mean, because there's so many of them. And because of that, we're not going to settle all that here this morning, because there is a message and a flow of thought that comes from this, and I think you largely get the same message no matter how much you read it. It's a little clearer in some cases than others. But I think even though the uh, specific meaning of the symbols is disputed amongst good, solid, Bible-believing Christians who are trying their best to understand this well and what it means in real life, the overall message comes out largely the same. I do want to mention one thing before we dive in. There are three significant new symbols or images that are introduced in this passage, things we've never seen or heard of before, and they're just thrown in here, rapid fire, and then as soon as John throws them in there, he gets off of them again. He doesn't say anything else about them. And then he's going to come back to them over and over again for the next several chapters. These are three symbols that become very prominent in the next several chapters. And those symbols simply are uh, the time period of three and a half, be it three and a half 
years or three and a half months, or in this case, at, at some point, three and a half days. That, that three and a half keeps recurring, or 42 months, or 1,260 days, which is three and a half years of, of 30-month days. You, you see this over and over and over again. It's mentioned here several times, never mentioned before, uh, and, and suddenly it's just going to come up over and over again. That's the first one. Uh, the second one is this idea of a beast who arises from the abyss. Who is that? He's just mentioned, and then we move on, and he's not mentioned again. He'll become more prominent later. And then lastly is this image of two cities at war. The holy city at war with the unholy city. God's city at war with man's city, or as the great theologian, a fourth century theologian, St. Augustine would put it, the city of God versus the city of man. All three of these, the three and a half, the beast from the abyss, and the two cities are, are themes that we're just going to see over and over and over again. So I'm not going to say anything else about them this morning. And we're going to pick those up later as they come up in more detail. What I want to do this morning is, is catch the flow of what's taking place in this uh, vision that John sees. And I think there's probably, um, the best way to do that is in two parts. First, just asking ourselves, what's here? And then secondly, what do we take away from this? And that's where we're going to kind of land uh, this morning. Whoop, and I see that I got myself behind. Oh, no, I didn't. We're here. This is good. Okay. So let's start diving into this. Uh, first, this vision is set up by this uh, funny exchange between this mighty angel and John, where John's told to go take that scroll, and he's like, okay, I'm going to take it, probably thinking he's going to read it. And the guy hands it to him and says, here, eat this. Eat it? <laughs> I thought I was going to read it. No, eat this. And that sounds really weird at first, but those of us familiar with the Old Testament will immediately recognize that this is imagery just like almost everything in Revelation that's coming right out of the Old Testament, uh, particularly the Old Testament prophet Ezekiel chapter 2 um, and into chapter 3. He too has an apocalyptic vision where he is handed a scroll with God's words on it. He is told to eat it and the scroll is sweet to Ezekiel's mouth. But then as you keep reading and he begins to, and that's symbolic of the prophet kind of identifying with the message that God is giving him. He's, he's taking it into himself. These are God's words, but he is owning them, and he is then proclaiming them to the people. And as Ezekiel does that, the people reject that message, and then therefore it's a message of judgment, and so it says it, it makes him very bitter in his spirit. Well, John's image is picking up that same idea right here. He says, eat it, it'll be sweet in your mouth, but sour in your stomach. This is the like two boxes of Krispy Kremes scroll, right? <laughs> You pound them all down, you're like, this is awesome. And then later you're like, oh my gosh, what was I thinking, right? <laughs> That's kind of the experience that he has. Why is it sweet to his taste but makes his stomach bitter? Well, again, I think the imagery is very similar to that uh, of the Old Testament. This is a reference to the gospel message. Because the gospel is good news. It is sweet, is it not? God's call to all people all over the world, come and repent and be saved because of what I have done for you, you can have eternal life. There could be no sweeter message than to know that God loves us far greater than we ever imagined, as Tim Keller would put it, far greater than we ever dared dream that he would take our place on the cross and pay our penalty. That's how much God loves us. What a sweet message. But it's not really all sweet, is it? It's also a bitter message. The gospel is the bitter message that we need saving. Is it not? The gospel is the call to repent, 
because you have evil deeds you need to repent of. In fact, the gospel is actually bad news before it's good news. In fact, I think we can say that a little stronger. It's only good news insofar as it is bad news first. The worse our sin is and the greater our guilt before God is, the more amazing and beautiful his salvation is. The gospel is a wonderful message precisely because we are so desperately sinful. Do you see the bittersweet in that? That kind of becomes sort of a a theme that's sort of woven throughout the rest of the chapter 11 narrative. So John has this bittersweet message that he needs to proclaim. And then he sees a vision of people doing that. So briefly, what's going on here? What are we supposed to take away from it? Let me just hit what's going on here in four quick questions. Who's here? What are they doing? What happens to them? And how does it end? Okay. Who's here? What are they doing? What happens to them, and how does it end? First of all, who are we talking about here? Who's the central focus of this prophecy? Again, lots of debate about that. We don't have time to go into all the different views at this point. Let me just simply say, I think this is a reference to Christians, and we're going to see in a moment maybe a narrow subset of Christians that are sort of representative of all others. The vision opens up with John's... um, Uh, command to go measure the temple that again is coming out of the old testament ezekiel chapter 40 ezekiel was told to go measure the temple this is all stuff that's images from the old testament that's happened before john always does something a little different with them but he's always starting with images uh, from the old testament and the measuring of the temple is the measuring of essentially the people of god who are represented there actually both within uh, prophetic uh, literature like Ezekiel and even very straightforward teachings in the New Testament, the people of God as God's temple is a very common image. Uh, one thinks of uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, um, verse, or sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, where the Apostle Paul says to a, a whole church full of people, do you not know that you are the temple of God? Or Ephesians chapter 2, at the end of that chapter, where God says that he is building all of his people, both Jews and Gentiles, who have repented and believed in Jesus, together into one people, and then he calls us one temple, that God is building us into a temple. So this imagery is very common throughout the uh, Old and New Testaments. Then he switches, without warning, to this idea of two lampstands and two olive trees. Now, we've seen lampstand imagery before, too, and we're not going to take the time now to go back and look at it all, but we saw in chapter 1, lampstands also represented churches. There were seven of them in the case of chapter 1, and we looked at some of the Old Testament roots of that imagery um, back in the time of Zerubbabel and so forth. We're not going to go back through all of that, but just suffice it to say, I think all of this imagery seems to point us towards saying, whoever these two witnesses are, they represent God's people proclaiming God's message. Now, what are they doing? Well, they're proclaiming God's message. They're proclaiming God's message. Um, They're preaching the gospel, essentially. Their ministry is described, um, verses 4, 5, and following, in terms that unmistakably recall the ministries of the Old Testament prophet Elijah and, of course, the great Old Testament figure Moses. Uh, The specific reference in verse 6, they have the power to shut the sky so that no rain may fall during the days of their prophecy is a very clear reference to Elijah in 1 Kings uh, about 16, I believe, praying uh, judgment upon an unrepentant Israelite king, Ahab, and, and the judgment is that it doesn't rain 
for a while, and there's famine in the land. Uh, They also are given the power, verse 6 says, uh, to uh, turn the waters into blood and strike the earth with every kind of plague. We've seen this kind of thing already throughout this seven uh, trumpets series. These are references back to the time of the Exodus and Moses confronting the Pharaoh and the Nile River turning to blood and so forth. And so their ministry is pictured as an Elijah-like ministry, a Moses-like ministry. And what were those two men doing? Both of those guys, although they lived at very different times and had very different experiences, there was some commonality in their ministry. Both of those guys were bringing God's message to repent to a stubborn, prideful, and arrogant king who was entrenched in his rebellious pride. In the case of Moses, it was the Egyptian Pharaoh. In the case of Elijah, it was the Israelite king Ahab. They were so entrenched in their rebellious, stubborn pride against God that they refused to acknowledge their sin before God and repent. And so their message was repent, and because they didn't repent, there was judgment. It's interesting, their message is pictured as fire coming out of the mouths in verse 3 of these prophets. Talk about a vivid image, you know. You're a fire-breathing dragons. These are like fire-breathing people, you know, just, you know, and people get roasted. Which, again, is a, it's, a, it's a wild image, but it's not that hard to understand what it's picturing, right? We've seen this kind of thing in Revelation before. Fire, and, and in the Old Testament as well, Daniel chapter 7 and so forth. Fire coming from a judge is, is, is a form of judgment. Fire coming from God is, is his way, it's, it's a way of picturing that God's judgment is coming down on people who refuse to repent of their sin. And the fact that this is coming out of their mouths is pretty clear. Their, their words are a judgment on the people. In the same way that we saw an image of Jesus in Revelation chapter 1 who had a sword coming out of his mouth. Obviously not a literal picture, but the the symbolism is not difficult to understand. Uh, He will conquer and he will rule by the power of the words of his mouth. The same kind of thing is going on here. So we've got these two witnesses in this vision who are announcing this message of judgment on a world that is really not very interested in hearing it. Why do I say this is the gospel? Because the gospel of Jesus is bitter sweet. It is sweet to the one who repents. Earlier, so many of us sang, and I I get chills sometimes when I listen to our church sing, because you can tell when a group of people are just singing because they know the tune and it's time to sing. And then you can tell when people are singing because they really mean it, you know? And there was some singing in this room just a few minutes ago with feeling about the greatness of God and the wonder of his grace extended to us. Oh, yes, we can say as a congregation, and we do. I feel it with you guys, this yearning to be able to shout from the the, the depths of our being that God's grace toward us is amazing. But that presupposes we've accepted something about ourselves, right? We need his grace. We need it. And once you've accepted that, oh, the sweetness of the grace of God is more than you can put into words. But if you've not accepted that, the gospel is not a sweet message. In fact, it's a very, very bitter message. It's a message of judgment. The gospel is only good news once a person accepts the bad news that we are guilty of violating God's holiness and therefore we are justly condemned 
to an eternity of death apart from his grace. If I'm ready to hear that message, the gospel becomes a sweet song of salvation. If I'm not willing to hear that message, the gospel is nothing but a bitter judgment. How dare you say I'm out of line? That's what the Egyptian pharaoh was doing in Moses' day. That's what King Ahab was doing in Elijah's day. And that's what these people are doing in this vision. That leads us to, okay, who are these people, Christians? What are they doing? Are they preaching the gospel? What happens to them? Well, there's a backlash, and they're killed. They're killed. They're protected by God for a while, and, and, and their message goes out, but eventually the opposition to the message of the gospel builds so much that there is a backlash, and these people are killed. They're killed by a sinful world that is under the sway of a satanic power. Again, we'll talk more about who this beast is later. But right now, it's enough just to see that it is both stubborn, arrogant people whose stubborn, arrogant pride is fueled by spiritual and satanic influences. It's not only Satan who opposes the gospel, and it's not only people. It's people with whom Satan is delighted to work, whether they realize it or not. And notice that the death of these two witnesses is celebrated. The fact that it says they, they refused to let them be buried back in the first century was one of the, the, the most... That's like one of the ultimate ways you could, you could mock somebody, you could uh, dishonor somebody. It's bad enough that you kill somebody, but it was seen to be a, something, a way of honoring the dead that you bury their bodies or put their bodies in a tomb. And to leave their bodies out meant that you know, the vultures could come and just pick at their corpses. It's, just, it's a nasty picture, and it's a way of saying, you're not even worth burial. You're less than human. You are nothing other than a piece of meat, food for the birds of the air. And so there's this idea, not just that they killed them, but they're happy about it, excited about it. And they even throw parties and exchange presents. It's like Christmas in July. Because these two witnesses had tormented us with their incessant declarations that we're wrong with God and we need to repent. We're tired of it. These two witnesses are viewed by unrepentant sinners as meddling religious do-gooders whose mouths really just need to be stopped. At last, we don't have to listen to those religious nuts anymore. Have a party. Exchange some presents. How does it end? We've seen who they are, what they're doing, what happens to them. How does it end? They are resurrected, and they are brought to heaven. They're resurrected not to continue their prophetic ministry. They're resurrected and then immediately brought to heaven. They get their eternal reward. Their faithfulness even to death is vindicated and rewarded by eternal life with God. And then the vision ends with those who killed them facing yet another partial judgment. An earthquake, about 7,000 people are die. Uh, die. Uh, Bible scholars note that 7,000 is probably about a tenth of the population of, of a typical city like Jerusalem back in the first century. So, Big earthquake, 10% of the people die. Again, it's kind of this partial judgment stuff. A lot of people die, and even though most people don't, those that do, it's enough to make them realize, like, wow, this is, this is an awful judgment. Quite the drama. Let, let's turn the corner and head home. So much more could be said about that. We'll talk about it some Wednesday night in our Revelation class if you want to come. But here's where I want to land this morning. When you read this as Christians today, what are we supposed to get from this? What is God saying to his church? I think there's a solid answer to that. The imagery is most directly understood, I think, as 
depicting Christians who faithfully preached the gospel during those previous six trumpet judgments. That's why the series is halted, why we go and show this other vision, because this is what's been going on the whole time unrepentant sinners are being judged by God. Whether you think that's all in the past or all in the future, I think the basic understanding holds either way. So they're making Jesus known in the midst of a world that remains in stubborn resistance to him. In other words, these two witnesses probably most directly represent Christians who we call martyrs. Christians who are literally killed primarily because they're Christians. And that still happens in the world today. Did you realize that? Always has, and it continues to. Depending on how you define being killed for your faith, which is a surprisingly difficult thing to actually quantify, even the most narrow definitions, the most conservative estimates, would indicate that there are probably hundreds of Christians who die every month in the world today, predominantly because they're Christian. Thousands of people per year, and that is the narrowest, smallest estimate. It may be more like in the tens of thousands. That is the world we live in today. Most of those uh, take place in, uh, of course, countries like Iran, Pakistan, Syria, Iraq, Yemen, North Korea, and places like that. We must never forget these people because they're our brothers and sisters. We need to pray for their safety, we need to pray for their faithfulness, even unto death. Just as we prayed for a man earlier, I'm going to call him Larry, that's not his real name, in a Muslim-majority Middle Eastern country right now, working with somebody that our church supports, who's left the Muslim faith, become a Christian, and his extended family is after him. He's in serious danger of life and limb. All we know is we need to keep praying. So yes, this does still happen today. Having said that, it is also true that the vast majority of Christians in the world today are not in direct danger of losing their lives because of their faith. And at this point, when uh, modern American Christians read a book like Revelation, we start thinking about people whose lives are on the line for their faith, um, we often think, I, I believe mistakenly, that, that, that a book like Revelation has far more to say to a Christian in North Korea or Afghanistan or Iraq than it does to us because we're, we're not really in threat of anybody killing us because we're Christians. But what I think is happening here is that just as was the case uh, in chapter 6 at the fifth seal, these martyrs are really representing those who suffer in all sorts of ways for the gospel of Christ. These pictures of Christians who pay the ultimate price for the gospel, they actually pay for it with their lives. It's a minority of people, but you know what? It was a minority of people in the first century when Revelation was originally written. We saw that, if you remember, in chapters two and three in the letters that were written to these uh, seven churches in first century um, Asia Minor. There were a few of them that had been killed. At least one of them is mentioned by name, but the vast majority of the Christians in those churches weren't being killed. And so it's not like they were all under daily threat of losing their lives. Some of them were being killed, and that was really scary for the rest of them. But most of them faced other kinds of suffering that fell short of actually being killed for your faith. And in this way, the martyrs, those who pay the ultimate price, are sort of like the tip of the iceberg. 
They sort of are the ultimate pinnacle of giving for the gospel. But there are literally dozens of other ways that Christians give for the gospel. Christians are thrown in prison in places regularly, like China and others today. Some of them do end up dying. Many of them do not, but they are mistreated. Their freedom is taken away. There's imprisonment. There's the loss of property, confiscation of property. The loss of income. That was a specific situation many of those first century churches were facing. For some people in some societies today, identifying yourself too closely with Christianity might cost you on the job and the income front. And if you faced a situation like that at work, you know how scary that can be. The loss of security. The loss of relationships. What if I have a good friend? What if I have a family member whom I love, but they're living in unrepentant sin and they refuse to call sin, sin? At some point, it is incumbent on me in proclaiming the gospel to say, you need to repent of this according to the Bible. That's not my word, that's God's word. And the good news is, in his grace, God gives you the freedom to repent of it. That message is not often well-received by people who are very happy with their lives. Thank you very much. And who are you to tell me where my life is off? Who, what is your Bible to tell me how I'm living wrong? It may damage a relationship. It may cost you a relationship. That's a real loss. Loss of social standing. And at the very least, we face ridicule and scorn from a culture that is aligned against the things of God. In our culture today, the culture is lining up such that anybody who believes in a biblical sexual ethic is not only called old school, that was easy. Now we're being called hateful and bigoted haters of people. And the scorn gets piled on. But proclaiming the gospel of repentance is a bittersweet thing. Because, as we've said, the message of salvation presupposes that we need saving. That we're guilty of wrong before God. And according to the Bible, there is not a thing we can do about that. Even if I were to accept that I am, okay, guilty, I've sinned, I've probably done some things that God considers sin, okay, I can accept that. But the, the biblical message is even worse. It says, you are so guilty, there's nothing you could possibly do to make it right or make up for it. You're not only guilty before God, you're lost in your guilt before God. That applies to every human being alive in the world today. Christian and non-Christian alike. It's probably the understatement of the morning to say that is not a message that goes down easy. But that's our message. I didn't write it. I didn't choose it. You didn't either. God chose you. And he gave you and me that message. It's not a message that goes down easy, and proclaiming it often produces a backlash of offense and rebuke or scorn at the very least. And Jesus told us in John 15 to expect it. John chapter 15, uh, specifically verses 18 through 21, he said, the world is going to hate you if you're following my footsteps because it hated me. 
me take just one moment to read these couple of verses. The passage is actually longer than this. I'll read the core of it right here. Jesus was very explicit about what Revelation is picturing here as an image. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, if you thought the way they did and accepted what they accept, then the world wouldn't hate you. The the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, I chose you out of the world, that's why the world hates you. And remember I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. Look, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. And they put me on a cross. So all who are faithfully proclaiming the gospel will face the same backlash. Can I just mention briefly before we end this thing, one clarification. This is not a call to be brash or unfeeling or insensitive or stupid in how we preach the gospel. Uh, We don't get any kudos in heaven when people scorn us because we're acting like idiots. You do get kudos in heaven when people scorn you because you are acting like Jesus. There's a difference. There is a difference. Preaching the gospel should never be done in a brash, insensitive, or ugly way. To actually do that shows that we don't understand the gravity of sin, because if you really understand the gravity of hell, you can't talk about it flippantly or angrily to somebody. It breaks your heart, and it terrifies you, and it humbles you. Jesus came full of both grace and truth, and we are to proclaim the gospel message, which contains the truth with as much grace and wisdom and sensitivity as by the grace of God we can muster. So just to clarify that, the message has enough truth of its own. We don't need to come across brass. That's not what we're talking about here. But having said that, having said that, the gospel call is calling people to repentance. And that means calling sin what it is. There's a common theme. I see it on a lot of Christian blogs. You, you read about it in some books. It's popular amongst a lot of Christians today. And, and, and the thinking goes something like this, usually because we're tired of the culture wars. People are tired about arguing over things like divorce and abortion and, and stuff that just, and, and homosexuality and stuff that just gets everybody's blood boiling. And so it's common for Christians to say, you know, maybe it's time we just shut up about all this stuff. If we just stick to the gospel, just stick to Jesus... And forget about all that other stuff, we might find that things go a lot better for us and for the gospel. I'm sympathetic at an emotional level to that thinking, but I don't think it works. These are sensitive issues that call for much grace, to be sure, but they also call for truth. That's why we will talk periodically from our pulpit even about divorce or or homosexuality and gender identity or abortion or these things that touch us right here in this room. We always endeavor to do it with grace because there's great hope in the gospel. But the truth is we live in a world that is violating God's standards. And it is these things of which we need to repent. I can imagine some of those Christians and with how they would have advised um, John the Baptist. You remember his story? Uh, John the Baptist was over there preaching Jesus. It was great for a while uh, until he got crossways with Herod, the, the, the king. He was kind of a regional governor under the Roman Empire there. He was the guy in power, and he was basically telling Herod, the Bible tells us, that Herod had married his own brother's wife, 
And like, that's not okay with God. You can't do that. You can't go marry the wife of another man. And Herod, and particularly his wife, got so angry about this that John was thrown into prison and ultimately killed, cut his head off. He was dead. Now, I can imagine a lot of well-intentioned Christians saying, if John had just stuck with Jesus and just not gotten out of Herod's bedroom, like who cares who he's sleeping with and just stuck to the gospel, he'd have probably been around a lot longer. Would have gone much better for him. But you see, there's something important to understand here, and this is a mistake we often make. I make it too, and that's why I'm, I'm throwing this out here. We've got to think carefully about calling out sin in our world. I don't think John, we weren't given the details of what led up to the event. The event is just described for us. But I really strongly suspect John was not just worried about who Herod was sleeping with. I don't think the goal of John the Baptist in telling King Herod, you can't have your brother's wife, that's not okay. I don't think his goal was just to make him change his behavior. Make him become a good boy. I don't think his goal was just to meddle in Herod's life and get Herod to live the way John thought he should live. Although I have no doubt that's how Herod saw it. (laughs) What business is it of yours, you twerp? I'm the king, I can do whatever I darn well please. But I don't think John's goal was really just to change Herod's behavior. And so often, when we talk about sin, our goal is misunderstood, often by those who disagree with us, and sometimes by us ourselves, as trying to do great behavior management to get everybody to just live different. That's not the main goal. You know what I think John was doing? I think he was calling Herod to repentance. He was saying, you, even you, Mr. Big Shot Tough King, who's got it all together and you got all the power, you are guilty before God and you need to repent and believe in Jesus for the salvation of your eternal soul. And I can imagine an arrogant guy like Herod saying, guilty of what? Well, let me tell you, you're sleeping with your brother's wife. Not okay. There's a sin right there. There's an example of the kind of sin you have. You need to repent of that. I don't think he was trying to control his behavior. I think he was trying to point him to Jesus. He's preaching the gospel. But did Herod hear that message as sweet? He should have. But he didn't. He heard it as fire coming out of John's mouth. It was a blow to his pride, and he reacted in kind, and John was killed. And you know what? Jesus never chastises John the Baptist for having gotten off track and missing the gospel. Posthumously, Jesus calls John a tremendous witness for the gospel. This vision ends, and we'll end with this, with a picture of resurrection, the final judgment, and eternal life. Because that's the only way that Christians can stay faithful to proclaiming the gospel, doing it gracefully and and, and in humility, and still knowing there's going to be a price to pay. That's the task that we've been given. And the only way to give it is to stay focused on the end. Jesus himself, Hebrews 12, chapter 2, tells us, endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. And he calls us to the same. That's why Revelation is showing us Jesus will bring this to an end. I want to pray for us. And in just a moment, we're going to sing together uh, an old hymn that was recently redone by Keith and Kristen Getty called uh, Facing a Task Unfinished. It's a hymn about taking the gospel to our communities and to our world, no matter the cost. 
And I want to encourage us to pray uh, and, and then to sing this hymn as an expression, yes, God, that is what I understand you've called me to. And whether or not I feel like I've been doing it well, I want to do it better. As a church, let's do that. So worship team, come up, please, and lead us. Father, we thank you so much for the privilege of being your people and for a message that is artfully told uh, with lots of imagery and lots of emotion, even some laughter, but also some seriousness. And it is ultimately a message of calling us to be faithful to the call that you have given us. Every one of us in this room, and I will be the first one in the line, has to admit, I get so caught up in the stuff of this world, I forget that I am part of a task that remains yet unfinished. But as your people and as your church at Harvest this morning, we agree with your word that we are. And we pray that you would call us together and renew our heart for the task that you have given us to do. While we look forward to the consummation of being with you for all eternity. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. Would you stand with us, please, as we sing?